Well, the pastors and elders here at Twin City get a lot of questions from people on a variety of topics, some things related to uh, the teaching of Scripture or some issue in personal life that they would like some advice on and direction on from Scripture and so forth, but some questions are harder than others, but there's one particular question that question that sometimes ends up being the hardest. We get asked periodically for the recommendation of a good church because someone living in a certain part of the country or in a certain area in a certain city is having trouble finding one. This request is not always easy to answer. Uh, Frankly and sadly, there are many areas and many towns that don't have a church that we could readily recommend. That's why I love it when one of these calls comes from someone who lives near one of the churches in the Expositor Seminary Network. I can speak confidently about those 12 campuses. All 12 are solid churches, not perfect in any way, but solid and healthy churches. Well, if you lived in the first century and lived near the city of Thessalonica and you called me, I could also heartily recommend the church in that town. Even though the church was a relatively new church, this church was still known as a solid, flourishing, healthy assembly. So that begs the question, how do you recognize a healthy church? What are the marks of a healthy church? We do get at least a partial answer in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're starting today, and we'll finish next week, studying verses 5 through 10 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Now, in our study so far of this chapter, we have found Paul and his co-workers, the authors of this letter, who served for a while in Thessalonica. We have found them expressing their gratitude to the Lord for the believers there in that city. In fact, the verb in verse 2, we give thanks, that verb governs really the entire chapter. But now, starting at verse 5 through the end of the chapter, verse 10, we come to look more specifically at what made this a healthy, flourishing church. And what we find here are the reasons we can classify a church today as healthy as well. Now, in this section, verses 5 through 10, there are basically two reasons for this classification. In this passage... There is more we could look at in the rest of the New Testament in trying to understand what makes a healthy church, but we're just looking at 1 Thessalonians 1. Here's the first of the two reasons to classify a church as healthy and flourishing. Reason number one, its foundation is the priority of truth. Its foundation is the priority of truth, biblical truth, the Word of God the gospel. Now, this was true of the church in Thessalonica. That's how this church started. Truth was preached there in that city by Paul and his co-workers, the other missionaries, and it was preached then by men who themselves, those missionaries, were confident in that truth. So, let's see how Paul develops this, starting at verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, there's something said there in a negative way, you can spin it in a positive way, and we will do that in a moment. But first, just want you to know that that opening term, for, or your translation may say because, explicitly connects what we're studying now with what was said about the doctrine of election in verse 4. As you know, the last two Sundays I've preached on the doctrine of election because of what verse 4 said. So now Paul is explaining why he knew that those believers in Thessalonica were actually among the elect. And the first thing he comments on is the truth of the gospel that was both proclaimed in that city and believed by those Thessalonians. Now the gospel here, when he says gospel, it means what it means everywhere in the New Testament. It refers to the good news of salvation through Christ. If you want to know what is just the most concise summary of the gospel, I would point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great chapter about the resurrection of Christ and our own future 
resurrection of our bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, summarize the gospel. Paul writes there, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Those facts are at the heart of the gospel message, the good news, that must be believed in order to know Christ and to have your sins forgiven. But back to our verse, notice that he calls it our gospel. What does he mean by that? Well, I can tell you real quickly what he does not mean. He does not mean here that he and his co-workers are the ones who came up with this message, that they invented the gospel. We know that because even in these letters, First and Second Thessalonians, he calls it different things in different passages. He calls it the gospel of God. He also calls it the gospel of Christ. In another verse, he calls it the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He just meant here that they proclaimed the same gospel that they personally had also believed and embraced. And therefore, they were preaching that gospel and not some other false gospel. So these missionaries had gone to that city, they had proclaimed gospel truth, and these Thessalonians had embraced it. But a comment is necessary on the, word, on the phrase, word only. Now, there's a positive way to say this verse. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. You could think of it this way. Our gospel did come to you in words, of course, just not word only. Let's talk about that. The fact that Paul adds the term only does not mean that words were not involved. He means in addition to the use of words, something else was also true about what was going on there when they were proclaiming the gospel. This means, at the very least, that it was not just mere talk and speech-making that they were doing. Frankly, this is what many sermons are in many churches today, just merely talk. But we're going to discuss the something else that went along with the words in a moment. But first, let's do understand that words are necessary. That should be obvious simply because words are basic to intelligent communication, objective words, objective truth. It's only logical that words are involved, but beyond that logic is what Scripture says is necessary for there to be a true work of God. These are familiar words to us in Romans 10 verse 14. People have to believe the gospel. But he asked these questions in Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on Christ to be saved in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher, a proclaimer, someone proclaiming objective truth, words? That is God's way of bringing about spiritual revival and spiritual change. Peter also confirms the necessity of proclaiming words of truth. And he even makes the connection with spiritual change in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. You have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. God, by his spirit, uses the word, truth, to bring life to someone who's spiritually dead. In verse 25, he says, and this is the word which was preached to you. So, yes. There must be words, objective truth, setting forth the biblical message. This means that religious activity and services or religious events or even so-called spiritual revivals and so on that are not the result of clear biblical proclamation, they are not genuine spiritual events. True works of God are not just mystical experiences or emotional experiences. Works of God, true ones, are the result of truth being proclaimed. Therefore, a healthy church will be known for this. A healthy church will certainly be known for the priority and the proclamation of words, objective truth. Yet, Paul notes in this verse that the gospel's coming to them was not simply in word. These speakers themselves also had personal confidence in the words they were proclaiming. Here's how Paul says that. Verse 5 continues. 
not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just so you'll know, that statement is having to do with the preachers themselves. In other words, their preaching was not mere hollow speech-making. There were these other three ingredients that were essential to the outworking of God's sovereign purpose. And these three elements, these ingredients, are in a parallel construction. Power, the Holy Spirit, full conviction. They are in a parallel construction. That means these three terms are all connected together in thought. So let's look at them. First, Paul is saying that when they came there, they preached the message in divine power. Now, you need to know something about that word power. It's in the singular form here. I say that because it's many times found in the New Testament in plural form, and it's usually translated differently in the plural form. It's usually translated miracles. I'll give you some examples. Acts 2 verse 22 It says that Jesus was a man attested to you by God with miracles, same word in our text, in other words, powers, plural, miracles and wonders and signs. Another one, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul says, here are the signs of an apostle. In other words, these are things apostles can do. Here are the signs of someone being apostle. Signs, wonders, and miracles, our term, powers. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. The gospel was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various powers, miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. You'll find this over and over again in the New Testament. The authors describing how the proclamation of the gospel was confirmed powerfully by miracles. So in Thessalonica, that likely happened. As these men preached, their preaching was accompanied by miracles so that the message and the messengers were confirmed as being from God. But like I said, here the term is singular. And the singular can specify a miracle, but it also is used in the New Testament to refer to power that God provides for ministry to be effective. And that's the case here. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Romans 15, verse 19, Paul mentions what the Lord Lord accomplished through him. And here how he says it in Romans 15, verse 19. It was by the power of the Spirit so that he fully preached the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in, in other words, just good speech making, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's our word in our text. So in our verse, in 1 Thessalonians, this primarily points to the power with which the speakers themselves were filled with as they gave the message. And it was this power for this reason. These men knew that it was nothing about them that brings about effective ministry. They knew they were simply vessels in God's hands. But they were also keenly aware of something about the message they were proclaiming, the truth. They were keenly aware of the inherent power of the truth itself that they were proclaiming. And they knew that God uses that truth. He uses his word to bring about spiritual change in people's lives. And thus they were filled, they themselves were filled with this power of that knowledge. And therefore they preached with great freedom and great power. And that's connected to the second ingredient that accompanied the preaching. It was the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces the hearers of the truth. Now, we've noted this before along the way, even today, true saving faith does come by hearing the words of truth. But something else is also needed. Regardless of the message, regardless of the giftedness of the speakers or the sophistication of the program or the speakers, regardless of the, of the clarity and the compelling logic of the presentation, regardless of the, of the interesting communication style or the cleverness of the speaker, if truth is spoken, 
and not accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit, it accomplishes nothing. But when empowered by the Spirit, gospel truth convicts people. It instructs, it compels, and saves sinners. Now, there's a biblical reason the Holy Spirit's action is necessary. It's something we talk about from time to time here. It's found in what Paul taught the Corinthians about man's natural state, the way we're born. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. It says there that truth is foolishness to the natural man. Even truth, foolish to the natural man, the one that is still in their state of being unsaved, unredeemed. And it says, it goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 2.14, and he cannot understand them, the truths, because it, the truth, is spiritually appraised. We have another explanation of why the Holy Spirit is necessary. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. I preached on this recently. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Isn't the gospel itself powerful? Yes. But man is spiritually dead in his natural state. Cannot understand it. To complicate it even more, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they can't understand the gospel. That's why Paul summarizes it this way in Ephesians 2 verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So words of truth alone, no matter how well presented, cannot penetrate that blindness, that spiritual blindness, cannot penetrate that spiritual deadness in anyone. There must be a divine action to bring about change. God must powerfully awaken the dead soul and open blinded eyes so that the truth then regenerates. That's why Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, When we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. That quickening action of making alive the spiritually dead is the action of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the power accompanying accurate gospel preaching is the work of the Spirit energizing both the preacher and the listener. And Jesus even promised the apostles before he returned to heaven, just prior to his ascension, he promised the apostles this work of the Holy Spirit would come. Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you will be witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. One more ingredient. Finally, Paul states that the gospel came with full conviction. Still something about the preachers. You could translate it differently. You could translate this much assurance. The preaching came with much assurance in their heart. This expression summarizes the fact that Paul and the other missionaries were themselves so convinced of the truth that they were preaching and so convinced of what God does by His Spirit with sound teaching that they had this assurance in their own hearts, much assurance, that the proclamation of the gospel would have effects, that its inherent power would bring about effect. They knew in their hearts, if you summarize all this, they were preaching the truth, and they knew, therefore, the power of God would be at work. Practically speaking, for a preacher, this deep conviction This full confidence comes to the heart of the preacher because of prayer. Prayer for their preaching. Prayer for the hearts of the listeners. Listen, I can tell you, I would not do this if I did not have this assurance. If I thought that the health of this church or your spiritual health or change, spiritual change, is is up to me and my cleverness and my giftedness or my study or my abilities or whatever... I would not sleep at night. That's too big of a burden to bear. I would would find a different job, frankly, without that pressure. But I can tell you, it is so comforting for me to know that even when I've had a, a week that did not go the way I planned it to in my calendar, when I have a week where I did not study as much as I wanted to, when I leave my house on Sunday morning thinking, this sermon's not ready yet. 
I don't know what I'm going to do. That happens frequently, by the way. I'm so glad to know that because I'm preaching God's word, truth, I can have this confidence, much assurance that it's not up to me. I pray for that. I pray for that about myself. I'm so glad to know that our elders even gather here on Sunday mornings right before the service just to have a a quick prayer for this one thing, for God's work through the preaching of the Word and the teaching of the Word in all the classes today. There's a group that gathers here on Sunday morning before the first service up in the seminary room, and they're praying specifically for the Lord's Day and all that's going on here. Because we know this is, this is why we can have confidence in what we're doing here at Twin City Bible Church. Because the preaching of the Word is, is a priority for us. It's, it's at the very foundation of who we are. We know that that's how God works. Well, verse 5 closes with the thought that the people, people knew this about the missionaries. They knew that those men were absolutely committed to the truth they were proclaiming. And they were committed as well to living in light of the truth in their, in their lives as missionaries. Here's how he says it in verse 5. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Here's another way to translate it. You know how we lived among you and how we believed what we were preaching. We were full of assurance in this message. We were so totally trusting what the Spirit was going to do with it. And you saw how we believed it so much that we even wanted to live our lives in light of it and obey it. Everything about the lives of these missionaries and their interaction with the people was consistent with the truth they proclaimed. So to say all this differently, there was great harmony between the character of the missionaries and the message that they preached, and the Thessalonians could testify to that. They knew what kind of persons they were, They knew that these men genuinely believed what they were preaching. This truth was the priority in their preaching, and this truth was likewise the priority in their living. There's a word that summarizes those two agreeing with one another. It's called integrity. And that integrity was recognized also in the attitude that these missionaries maintained as they went about their truth-oriented ministry. Look at the end of verse 5. For your sake, he adds. In other words, those men did what they did, first of all, for the glory of God, no doubt, but it was all for the benefit of the hearers and not for their own glory, not for their own benefit. So here's the overall timeless point. It has always been God's way to use the preaching and teaching of truth to save sinners, to start churches, and to strengthen churches into healthy churches. A church will never be spiritually healthy, never, if Scripture and truth is not the foundation of its ministry and everything it does. It'll never be spiritually healthy if truth is not driving every aspect of its ministry. And it will never be spiritually healthy if that same prioritizing of Scripture is not evident in the lives of the leadership. Here's a second reason for considering a church to be healthy. It's verses 6 through 10. Number two, you can recognize a healthy church based on this. Number two, its commitment is the application of truth. Its commitment is the application of truth. Its foundation is the priority of truth. Its commitment is the application of truth. Now, a transforming work in the lives of those Thessalonians began at the moment of their salvation. At that moment, Scripture says, they became new creatures. That's how it words it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, famous verse there, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We're born spiritually dead, now they're spiritually alive. That's new. We're born in our spiritual death oriented toward Adam, but in the new birth, we now have an orientation toward Christ. There were old values and old priorities, and now we're learning new values and new priorities. Now we have new resources in Christ. But from the moment of becoming a new creature, true believers don't just stop there. They continue to grow spiritually. 
And as we know, the doctrine of ongoing spiritual growth is called the doctrine of sanctification. Increasingly being set apart for God's purposes, increasingly becoming more like Christ. The doctrine of sanctification. Now we get a very striking and poetic glimpse of of what that looks like in one line in what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says that we're being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ. We're being transformed into that image from glory to glory. It's a way of, of capturing this idea of progressive change and growth. We're told in Scripture to pursue that. So the patterns of holy living and obedience to the truth immediately began replacing sinful habits and disobedience. Listen to some of the ways Scripture tells us to pursue that. Ephesians 4, verse 22. Lay aside aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. 24. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Probably the classic verse on that that we mention a lot around here is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. In Philippians 2, verse 12, it tells us, work out your salvation. Don't work for it. You can't do that. But work it out. Make it evident. Grow. Mature. And then verse 13 encourages us and tells us that it's the strength of God that helps us do that. So now, in this chapter, in the rest of our chapter, we now come to find some confirmations of this spiritual growth, some confirmation that that growth and maturity was continuing to take place in the believers' lives in Thessalonica. And it will be the same thing that will happen in our lives today if we're growing and maturing. Therefore, these are confirming more specifically why that church was such a healthy church. And therefore, there are the reasons of why we will become increasingly healthy if these confirmations are here. Now, there's more in the New Testament, again, than what we find in our passage. But these are the ones our chapter emphasizes. And we won't do them all today. We're just going to talk about the first one. One confirmation of a commitment to applying Scripture to life which is necessary to be a spiritually healthy believer, and spiritually healthy believers are necessary to have a spiritually healthy church. One confirmation of a commitment to apply Scripture to life is this. Number one, this confirms it, joyfulness in suffering. Joyfulness in suffering. That is a confirmation that someone is maturing. Now, there are some others, and you might be thinking, Do we have to start with this one? I mean, can't we go to the others and maybe work up to this? I can't because this is the order that they're in. Verse 6. We'll just do verse 6 and 7 today. You also became imitators of us. In a relatively short time, these believers, on their part, and that's what you also means, on their part, They had become what he calls imitators. And the word became or become refers to lifestyle. These believers were developing a certain lifestyle that was totally different from what it was before they believed the gospel. And one of the ways this change was occurring was because they were seeking to imitate the Christian lifestyle that they saw in others. Now, in the New Testament... We are told to do that, to imitate others, not all others, the good others. Okay. Philippians 3.17, brethren, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Make observations of those Christians who are maturing and spiritually healthy and seek to be like them. We're specifically told to do that when it comes to church leaders. We're to, you're to imitate the church leaders. Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice those things. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 9, we've offered ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. 
I tell you, the clearest on this is Hebrews 13, verse 7, where you are directly told to do this, Hebrews 13, 7. Concerning church leaders, it says to you, imitate their faith. That's a tremendous responsibility and burden on us. It's a, it's a tremendous sense of stewardship. 1 Peter 5, verse 3, speaks to us as leaders. 1 Peter 5, 3, it says, elders are to be examples to the flock. So Paul understood that, and he did present himself that way as one to be imitated and copied, but not just because it was he himself they were copying, only because he had patterned his own life after Christ. So notice that he clarified this statement by adding these words in verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's the point. He told the Corinthians the same thing, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. What does it mean to imitate Christ then, since that's really the ultimate point? If you want to be spiritually healthy and grow to be more Christ-like, well, it certainly means we ought to follow his example of holiness. There's one. 1 Peter 1.16, it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And as well, we ought to be seeking to imitate his example of love. He said that, John 13, verse 34, love one another even as I have loved you. But in our passage, it's not talking about those. In our passage, there is a particular characteristic that these believers were learning as they imitated what they saw in Paul and the other missionaries, and as well, what they learned from observing Christ. And that's how to suffer the right way. This is evidence of maturing spiritually. This is evidence of becoming spiritually healthy. It's learning to suffer the right way. Now think about what Scripture tells us about the Christian life and its connection to suffering. Just think about what the Lord himself said about suffering being a normal part for all his followers, especially suffering as we try to live our lives before the world, opposition and attack and criticism from the world, neighbors, family members, spouses, children. It could be anybody, co-workers. Christ warned us, Matthew 10, verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. Come to me. Believe in my name. Take my name. And oh, by the way, you're going to be hated because you do that. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. Verse 20. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. It could be other kinds of trials. Just listen to John 16, verse 33. In the world you have tribulation. It's the nature of a fallen world. Acts 14, verse 22. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's the path on the way to the kingdom of God. There's no bypass. There's no Salem Parkway on this topic. There's only I-40. See how I contextualize there, you know. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that was true of the Thessalonians. They indeed faced much affliction, persecution, opposition. Look at verse 6. They received the word in much tribulation. Now, before talking about that tribulation, I do want you to notice something here. Paul uses another way here of of speaking of conversion. True conversion, he could have said it that way, having become converted in much tribulation, having embraced Christ in much tribulation, having believed in Jesus, he speaks of it as receiving the word, and that's important. To become a Christian is to accept and submit to the truth, God's Word. Spiritual advance, then, is possible only after first receiving the Word, the truth. And these Thessalonians did receive the Word. They were converted. 
And in their case, they first embraced the gospel in much affliction. Suffering was part of their experience in following Christ from day one. And the Greek word here for tribulation doesn't mean some mild discomfort and you know some kind of things we have to put up with here and there in life. No, it's a word that means intense pressure. They experienced severe persecution. Now, later on in chapter 3, we're going to find that one of the things Paul writes in the letter to them is he reminds them that I warned you about that. Here's what he says in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Don't be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. So Paul and and the missionaries, they suffered much, and after they left, it spilled over into the opposition to the believers who were left behind. But here's the amazing thing. Though they received the word in much of tribulation, severe, intense pressure, instead of misery and fear, the Thessalonians displayed something else, verse 6, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, the theme of joy and suffering is a biblical theme. It was taught by Christ. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad for all that because there's a great reward, he says, for you in heaven. And as well, we find in the Scripture that the apostles and many of the Christian churches in the first century faced horrible opposition because of their faith, and they still found joy in their sufferings. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 this is in Jerusalem, early days of the, of the birth of the church. Acts 5.41, Peter and the apostles were beaten. They were flogged at the order of the council. And after that, 5.41 of Acts says, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 4, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How is that possible? How is a response like that possible? How can we mature in our Christian walk where it's being evidenced in joyfulness and suffering? Well, I can tell you one thing. It's not a natural response. There's nothing within us that allows us to work this up. I got to do this. I got to do this. Instead, it's due to something outside of us, in a sense. And our verse confirms it. This joy was given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces this spiritual fruit of joy in. God's people. That's why it's listed as a fruit of the Spirit, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. So this is a confirmation that a believer and then even a church is maturing spiritually. In fact, this confirms that a church is growing in its understanding of what kingdom living is all about. I've preached on Romans 14 before, the great chapter that gives us direction on how to handle freedom issues and the gray issues, the conscience issues of life and drinking and eating and things like that, a host of other issues. In the middle of all that, here's a comment, Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking. It's not really even about all that. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So no matter how difficult circumstances become, true believers, true Christians do not have to lose their ultimate joy because the Holy Spirit works this joy in the hearts of the elect. And I told you that these believers were learning this by imitating the apostles and how they handled their affliction, but also Christ. 
Christ is presented to us as the ultimate example on how to suffer. And I have pointed so many believers along the way to this verse in 1 Peter chapter 2. I pointed my own heart to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 many times. Listen to what it says. And in 1 Peter 2, he's talking about submitting to authority. And sometimes that's not fair. You suffer unjustly. Here's what he says after talking about suffering unfairly. 1 Peter 2, 21. You have been called for that purpose. Stop there. You want to know what your calling in life is? Here it is. God's called you to suffer unjustly. It's part of your calling. You might hear that and go, well, I, can I set up chairs and bring donuts instead? You know, I mean, can that be my ministry? Yeah, you can do that, but in addition to that, this is your calling. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, verse 23, here was his example, here's what he did. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What allowed him to still have joy was trusting that the Father sees, the Father knows, and the Father will always eventually do what is right for His own glory and our good. So this is a wonderful encouragement to us. That these Thessalonians, even though they were living in the middle of a, of a horrible pagan environment, they had, the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, become imitators of the apostle and his co-laborers and most important of Christ in how to suffer rightly, how to have joyfulness in suffering. And here's something else amazing about this church. As a result of them receiving the gospel, the word, in the midst of great suffering, and as a result of imitating the missionaries and Christ in how to have joy in the midst of suffering, a joy developed in them by the Holy Spirit, this young congregation became an example for the rest of the Christian churches in the whole region. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, Christians in the whole region of Greece there began to look to Thessalonica, to that young church, to learn how to live a Christian life. By the way, do you know this is the only time in the New Testament, the only text in the New Testament where an entire congregation is viewed as a model for other churches. This was a healthy church, even a church worth emulating. And next time, we'll continue the passage and we'll discuss a few more confirmations of the spiritual health of a church. And therefore, proof, more confirmations and proof that individuals and a church is committed to the application of the truth. Well, let me leave you with three implications just to close with. Implication number one, and this has to do with the leadership here at Twin City. This one's for myself and the other leaders. Implication number one, the spiritual health of a church starts with its leadership. The spiritual health of a church starts with its leadership. We as leaders need to take to heart and continually be reminded that we are to be an example to you, the flock. And it's true in many ways, obviously, but included in the way that we're to be an example to you is the way that we respond to difficulty, suffering, opposition, affliction, trials, intense pressure. No doubt, we should take our sin seriously. We, we, we must, as leaders, keep short accounts of our sin through continual confession and repentance. But in addition to that, we're given this responsibility to be like a ship in a storm, affected by the waves of life. I mean, we are affected by the trials of life. We're not robots either. We have emotions too. 
but we're to be like a ship in a storm that though the ship is affected by the storm, it's not thrown off course. That's implication number one. The spiritual health of a church starts with its leadership. Implication number two, any of us can momentarily lose joy. We can. And there's one thing in particular that can cause us to momentarily lose our joy, some form of sin, no doubt about it. We, we can't have joy while nourishing some sin. But we can take to heart always these words of Scripture about our sin, like Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, find compassion always from the Lord. Compassion. 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all the unrighteousness. What a wonderful Savior, mediator we have. So knowing that, we ought to be prompted to keep short accounts of our sin. The Christian life is one of maturing in what it means to understand our sin and what it means to continually confess and repent. And it's regardless of whether it's the sin of doubt that enters in or some other sin, we can confess and then keep pursuing joy. In fact, we ought to pray what David prayed when he confessed his sin, his great sin in Psalm 51. He he also said something else in his prayer, verse 12. It's a good prayer for us to the Lord. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I've prayed that many times. Lord, restore that sense of joy in my heart. But we are commanded to pursue this. Pursue joy. We can lose it, but keep pursuing it. Philippians 4 verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Always. James 1 verse 2, the verse we like to skip over. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Trials, yay! I mean, it's certainly not something giddy. It's something deep and ultimate. Joy in the Lord. 1 Peter 1 verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Even though that, you greatly rejoice. 1 Peter 4, verse 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And one thing in particular is definitely necessary in our pursuit of this joy, just like I said about preaching, the importance of prayer. Here it's truth as well. It's so important, prayer. We must pray for the Lord's help in this, living out joy. Human joy just doesn't cut it. It it dies in times of great intense pressure and trials. But the joy of the Holy Spirit is a joy that transcends circumstances and even grows. So we pray for the Spirit to develop this in us. And I tell you, you know you're maturing in your prayer life when you even pray the way Paul prayed about suffering. He longed for the spiritual benefit that suffering brings. Philippians 3 verse 10. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. That's a very important implication. Any of us can momentarily lose joy, but we need to pursue it again. The last one, implication number three. We must guard the heart of our church's ministry. We must guard the very heart of our church's ministry. And that heart is a commitment to the inspiration and the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. That is at the heartbeat of who we are, a commitment to the inspiration and authority and sufficiency of Scripture. How sad it is that so many churches in our nation, even in our own area, are preaching anything but the Bible. Preaching social change, 
politics, human goodwill, moral effort. Listen, Paul and the other missionaries, when they went to Thessalonica, just like when they went to any other city, they didn't get sidetracked on all those topics. They preached truth, gospel truth. And granted, there are those churches that are sometimes preaching about the Bible. That's not the same thing. That's not what we should do. They preach about the Bible. Some even preach from the Bible. That's not the same thing as preaching the Bible. Verse by verse, precept by precept, explaining what the Bible says, what it means by what it says, and then how it applies to our life. That's a commitment to the application of truth. That's a commitment to the authority and inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture. The abandonment of accurately doing that, though, by so many preachers and pastors, I really, I really believe it's connected to the fact that they don't believe, really, in the inherent power of the Word. And they don't understand, not really, how the Spirit works and what the Spirit uses, the Word. If you abandon that, then of course you don't have that full conviction, that much assurance in how biblical ministry happens. And so you're continually looking for other things to do. That does make me grateful, though, for those churches in our area, and there are some, that are committed to the Scriptures. And of course, I am most grateful for this commitment here at Twin City. But we must continually guard that commitment so that we never change from that course. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking us down this path of what it means to be spiritually healthy, not only as individuals, but as a church. So, Lord, we want to be known for this way. We want to be a testimony even to others that our foundation is the priority of truth. It's the center of all we do. But it's not just knowing it. We have a commitment to the application of it in all things. And Lord, we're learning here in your word that that includes an application to it and our obedience to it in the times of our suffering. That's when we get most tested, it seems. That we, we may think that other things in our life are okay, we're, we're decent husbands and wives or citizens of our country or we're decent workers or we're, we're having a decent time of quiet time and faithfulness to church and all that, but first thing Paul talks about here is suffering and how to suffer the right way. So Lord, we recognize this is a sign of spiritual health. We do pray for our church and all of us here, that you would develop this this in us by your Holy Spirit. I do pray for anyone here who's never come to that place to really receive the word, the truth. Receive it personally, that I believe it. And I want to follow Christ in the forgiveness of my sins now. Lord, I pray you would open their hearts to believe that and to trust in him. In our Savior's name. Amen.